All right, so thanks for joining us today. It's Friday as usual. Um, I'm super happy to have a friend of mine, a colleague of mine here to speak today. So Kim Boswell is one of the emergency medicine trained critical care physicians. As she self-admitted to just moments ago, she is living and breathing ECMO at the moment, uh, working in the LRU uh, over the next couple of days. Um, I asked Kim to come and speak to us to do a little bit of ECMO refresher because it wouldn't be the University of Maryland critical care um, uh, educational sessions without some ECMO sessions. And uh, she's going to be doing a talk today called ECMO before, during, and after COVID-19. So Kim, thank you for sharing with us today. I'm happy to have you here. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so um, I guess we'll get started. I appreciate that introduction. Um, all right, so we are going to talk today, as uh, you just heard, about ECMO, and we're going to talk about uh, ECMO, kind of the history of it, what it was like before COVID, um, some general principles of ECMO and ECMO management, um, and then we're going to kind of talk about specifically kind of uh, anecdotally our experiences with COVID ECMO and um, and then move into kind of the future of what ECMO might look like in the, uh, in the years to come. So uh, first and foremost, I have no disclosures to make and we'll move right on to some, uh, anticipated learning objectives. Um, we're gonna talk about the scope of ECMO support both um, internationally and here at University of Maryland. We're gonna talk about indications for VB and VA, uh, but I think it's important for me to point out that this talk is really gonna focus primarily on adult VB ECMO. There will be certain moments that I'll reference VA, especially when we talk about indications um, and maybe a few of the technical aspects, but overall this talk is gonna focus on adult VB ECMO. Uh, VA and pediatric and neonatal ECMO is an entirely different topic um, and lecture in and of itself. So. We're gonna um, understand the ideas behind vent management um, while you're caring for a patient on ECMO. Uh, there are some different strategies and we'll kind of touch on those and we'll talk specifically about what we do here at the University of Maryland. Um, we're gonna talk about uh, general ideas for troubleshooting common problems that you will encounter when caring for patients on ECMO. And then um, kind of look over the um, suggested guidelines for COVID ECMO as published by the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization. So moving into the very beginning of ECMO, um, it really was an idea in its inception in the early 1950s. Um, there were several institutions throughout North America that were really working towards developing what we call now the ECMO circuit, but was then called like a heart and lung machine. Um, the historical writing about this really just references that the beginning was a series of disasters and most patients almost all died, um, most commonly due to bleeding and air embolism. We still have bleeding problems, but air embolism with our technology today is much less of an issue um, and we don't encounter it very often. So there were five main centers in the uh, North American continent that were really looking at developing some sort of device that would be a heart and lung machine, um, many of which contracted with major organizations like General Motors and IBM for engineering and financial backing. Um, and really it was Dr. Gibbon at Jefferson in Philadelphia who developed this, um, what you see on that left side in that black and white photo, the first functional heart and lung machine. 
He put four patients on this machine, three of which died. The one that survived was a patient who had an ASD. And uh, she actually survived for at least 50 years after her ECMO run. So that's pretty notable as one of your first patients on ECMO, very successful. So the picture on the right is in color, uh, obviously reflecting some uh, time passage there. And this is a patient who was in a motorcycle collision in 1971 and was treated in a hospital in Santa Barbara. And it, clearly you can see there's obviously been not only time pass, but the um, evolution of the ECMO machine is quite different than the one on the left-hand side. So that moves us into today, uh, nearly 40 years later. Uh, and this is what our ECMO machines look like today. Um, the left side of your screen is what we use here primarily at University of Maryland. It's called a Rotaflow. Um, it is uh, run with the use of a pump here, a centrifugal pump, which uh, propels blood into a membrane oxygenator where oxygenation occurs and then the blood is returned to the patient. Um, it has a heater component, uh, but this is probably the most common circuit that we use here at University of Maryland. Uh, when the pandemic began back in uh, February and March, uh, University of Maryland invested in some additional ECMO circuits. Um, these two on uh, the right side of your screen, the top one being the breathe machine and the bottom one being the cardio help. Um, we are actually the first institution to ever put a patient on the breathe machine and it's really about the size of our, like a small roller board suitcase. It's pretty darn portable. Um, and um, so for that, it has uh, its own unique utility. The bottom right corner is basically the newer version of the Rotaflow uh, for all intents and purposes. It does exactly the same thing. It's made by the same um, company, uh, Mackay. Uh, but it's much more compact and it has the very digital screen and it has the ability to record and um, maintain a whole lot of data. So it's very helpful for research purposes. It's also helpful in patients who need transport because it's such a compact unit. So it can fit um, nicely in the back of a helicopter or in the back of an ambulance as to where the road of flow, which is what we typically use is very big and bulky and not as, um, you're not as able to easily transport it. So that is where we are today. Moving into some um, data about international numbers. Um, as I mentioned just a minute ago, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, otherwise referred to as ELSO, is kind of um, the major ECMO body uh, internationally. And any large ECMO center um, tends to um, it's a data repository essentially for research purposes and just information regarding ECMO. And so um, University of Maryland, as well as many other centers across the world, um, submit their ECMO data to this organization. And this data was published in the end of 2021 and reflects kind of the total volume of ECMO internationally in the year 2020. Um, and so if you kind of scan down to the bottom, hopefully you guys can see that it's not too blurry. Um, it looks like in 2020 across the world, uh, there were at least 151,000 ECMO runs. And that uh, these numbers reflect, again, as you can see, neonatal, uh, pediatric, and adult ECMO, and not only uh, VV, but VA, as well as eCPR. Um, survival of um, eCLS, which encompasses all forms of ECMO, is 69%, um, and then survival to discharge drops a little bit and is about 54% internationally. 
Um, we'll talk a little bit about our numbers in a moment, but what does that look like across across the world? How many centers are there? Well, there's a lot. And I think um, what's really interesting to look at this graph is that um, the number of ECMO centers internationally um, that are part of the ELSA organization um, really was pretty steady until about 2007, eight, and really into 2009 and 10. And then you see a pretty significant increase in the number of centers and the volume of ECMO overall being done. And um, I think that that is a reflection of um, the H1N1 pandemic, kind of pushing centers to really have to become comfortable um, and uh, really encourage the use of ECMO as a modality to treat ARDS. So it's a very interesting um, increase uh, that we see. And, and here at University of Maryland, our annual numbers reflects a very similar growth pattern to what you see in uh, just the number of centers internationally. So here at University of Maryland, uh, what do our numbers look like? Um, this table really encompasses all non-COVID adult ECMO in the year 2020. And I think as we all experienced, 2020 was a pretty bizarre year. And so while these numbers um, reflect our non-COVID overall, um, the, the non-COVID numbers were down compared to what we had done in previous years when COVID wasn't a thing. Um, but in our non-COVID patients, we did 62 runs of VV ECMO with a 78% survival off of ECMO and a 63% survival to discharge um, compared to the ELSO numbers and adult VV ECMO of 60% survival. Our VA numbers um, are a little bit different, but that encompasses our eCPR and eCPR in general has a much more significant mortality rate. So it really pulls down um, your survival to discharge. Um, so in total, 162 non-COVID ECMO runs in the year 2020 um, with an overall survival of um, nearly 70%, which is pretty remarkable and pretty, pretty awesome. Um, just for perspective, in the year 2019, we did 185 total ECMO runs. And in 2020, when you incorporate the COVID data, data excuse me, we did 228 ECMO runs in total. So that's pretty substantial. And we'll talk a little bit more about the COVID numbers um, in a few minutes. So moving away from um, numbers and into kind of the nuts and bolts of ECMO, um, a lot of us know this information, right? The indications for VV ECMO are ARDS essentially, and you want it to be a reversible etiology of your ARDS. Um, I put a little asterisk there because I think it's important, especially at a center like University of Maryland, where we do pulmonary transplants, there are patients in which we choose to cannulate, knowing that their underlying disease process is not reversible, and we cannulate them as a bridge to transplantation. Um, and we do this, we make this decision strictly based on the idea that sometimes patients who have end-stage lung disease get to a point in their disease process in which they are limited so significantly by their underlying disease that they're not able to maintain their physical uh, well-being. And offering them ECMO allows them the ability to continue their physical rehabilitation and maintain their strength so that when it's time for their transplant, they are able to undergo that procedure in an optimal idealized situation. 
So back to the uh, indications for VV ECMO, your ARDS cannot be cardiogenic in nature. If you have a cardiogenic component, um, there should be a discussion about potential VA ECMO support rather than VV. Um, and interestingly, uh, there are no absolute contraindications to VV ECMO. There are many relative contraindications, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in, in um, the next slide. So VA ECMO, uh, primary cardiac failure, refractory cardiogenic shock in a patient who has been optimized with ionotropic support, vasoactive medications, and potentially even additional mechanical support devices uh, like a balloon pump or an impella. Um, so these are patients who, despite all of those efforts, uh, continue to have evidence of end organ dysfunction related to their cardiogenic uh, decompensation. Patients who develop a rapid hemodynamic deterioration, uh, sometimes we see this in young patients who developed pretty significant viral myocarditis. Um, they can pretty much fall off a cliff in a hurry and become profoundly ill. Um, patients who have severe decompensated AS or MR are also candidates for VA ECMO. Um, and then at this institution, we have uh, moved towards VA ECMO for patients with um, pretty significant submassive or massive PEs as a, um, as a, as a therapy while their um, anticoagulation does what it needs to do. So um, moving into some decision-making um, systems for us here at the University of Maryland, when we get a consultation from a referring hospital, there's multiple physicians on the phone uh, weighing in about the, essentially the candidacy of uh, the patient being referred. One of the things that we've started to do is move towards using one of these objective measures as well. There are multiple different scoring systems that exist. These are just three of the um, many. Um, and not, there, not one of these has necessarily been shown to be superior than the others. Um, but they all kind of look at very similar parameters in general. And uh, with an increasing score, you have an increasing mortality associated with um, ECMO. So the REST score is the Respiratory Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenating Survival Prediction Score, really long title. Um, and it looks at many things, a patient's age, whether or not they have an immune compromised state, the number of days they've been on a ventilator, their underlying etiology for ARDS whether or not they have uh, fundamental CNS abnormalities, if they're on neuromuscular blockade or pulmonary vasodilators like INO, um, whether or not they've sustained a cardiac arrest and their peak inspiratory pressures. The PRESERVE score was published actually a year prior to the REST score and looks at a lot of these same, um, fundamentally the same ideas. And here at university, we use the preset score. It's probably the uh, most straightforward of the scores. It looks at five parameters, um, the patient's math as an indication of end organ dysfunction, lactate the same, platelet count, um, how long they've been in the hospital and what their, um, what their pH is. So um, when we're on a consult, we take all of these things into consideration and uh, the patient's preset score helps us determine what their relative risk of mortality is if they were to be cannulated. So once, to, once you decide and commit to um, placing a patient on ECMO, uh, there are a couple different cannulation strategies that you might see um, around. 
Um, there are actually three. Um, here we see two. Um, there is a uh, two cannula configuration, which you see the femoral jugular configuration, which is the most commonly used configuration here at University of Maryland. We preferentially use the right IJ and the right femoral if those are available. Uh, the drainage cannula or venous cannula is placed into the right common femoral, could be the left common femoral if that is the only available site. Um, and it drains blood from the IVC. That blood drains into the ECMO uh, circuit, is oxygenated and ventilated appropriately, and then returns through a cannula in the patient's right internal jugular vein. Um, and with ideal uh, placement, drops uh, the oxygenated blood into the right atrium. This VV ECMO relies on the patient's native cardiac function to uh, circulate the blood systemically. Um, alternatively, uh, a different strategy is a single cannula. It's a dual lumen cannula, um, and it's placed in the right IJ. The distal port acts as the drainage cannula and sits in the IVC. Um, and then the return lumen, um, when positioned properly, uh, basically drops that oxygenated blood right into the right atrium. While this seems like a more ideal method uh, of cannulation, it's one less stick, it's a one less foreign body in the patient's bloodstream. Um, it is one smaller cannula overall. And I think at university we found that we're not able to necessarily provide the degree of um, pulmonary support that we need to oftentimes in our patients with just this one single lumen. Um, and so our preferential uh, strategy is the option on the left with the right IJ and the right femoral cannulas being in place. So once you get your patient on ECMO, once they're cannulated, you think easy peasy, smooth sailing. Uh, but um, I think one of the important questions that we have looked at here at university and we have essentially standardized um, in our ECMO practice um, and again, VV ECMO practice is the idea of lung rest ventilation in our patients on ECMO. So we have decided upon uh, how are you? pressure control setting of 10, a pressure control above 10 of PEEP um, with a respiratory rate set at 10. And we consider these kinds of pulmonary pressures safe based on that ARDSnet data. And it's um, kind of a standardized um, ventilatory setting after cannulation. Um, so after your patient's cannulated and they've been on APRV 36 over zero in order to adequately or attempt to adequately oxygenate and ventilate them, how do we get to these settings? Do we just drop them right away to pressure control 10, 10, and 10? Um, no, typically we slowly back them down over the course of several hours because we do not want to contribute to any adult trauma by suddenly uh, withdrawing that significant positive pressure that they're experiencing. So over the course of several hours, we'll slowly back down on their pressure and transition them over to what we consider our lung rest settings here. Again, a pressure control of 10 over a PEEP of 10. Um, a lot of centers um, and a reasonable question to ask is why not just extubate patients after you cannulate them, if you can fully support them on ECMO? It's a totally fair question and some centers do indeed do that. It's, it's kind of termed awake um, ECMO. Um, and we have done that certainly here with certain patients, but um, in general, 
um, we look at uh, allowing our patients to maintain some degree of positive end expiratory pressure on the ventilator as a way to maintain some degree of open lung ventilation for these patients. Um, many of our patients also require a high degree of sedation and therefore complete removal of an endotracheal tube is probably not the safest idea either. So um, that's our philosophy, uh, philosophy about lung rest ventilation and typically what we do um, with our patients on the ECMO. Troubleshooting common problems with ECMO. Um, there are some, there's something called chatter or chugging and it's where essentially you're creating a suck down phenomenon and your ECMO lines start to swing. Um, it's kind of a, a commonly used term to identify flow issues in our patients and um, can reflect a few different problems. Uh, and so when you are uh, addressing this problem of chatter or chugging, um, you need to think to yourself and kind of assess what you think your patient's volume status is. Um, if you think your patient is intravascularly dry and that is why they're having chatter or flow issues, the, the suction on the drainage cannula is too much for that intravascular volume status. Um, fluid is the answer and whether or not it's crystalloid or a colloid, um, that depends upon your patient in this situation. If you feel like that's not the case, assessing mechanical issues, cannula positioning um, can sometimes, or repositioning can sometimes resolve those issues as well. Hypoxia tends to be a common occurrence in our patients and whether or not that's with repositioning and temporary um, shunting that resolves with time, um, you need to stop and ask yourself whether or not they're mechanical issues. Um, something as simple as an obstruction of their endotracheal tube, massive amounts of secretions that require um, something like a, a bronch um, or perhaps um, prone positioning. Um, but then moving towards asking yourself about whether or not you can optimize the patient on their ECMO circuit anymore. Can you increase their flow to provide them increased oxygenation? Um, adjusting the vent is something that we typically only do after we've optimized these other things and ensure that there's not a mechanical issue. Um, so you can increase the FiO2 on your ventilator. You can even consider titrating your vent support, meaning increasing your pressure control or your PEEP, if that seems appropriate for your patient. Um, the last uh, line here, high flow ECMO or adding an oxygenator are sort of technical things that we can address if we feel like we have um, addressed these other issues adequately, and yet we're still having refractory hypoxemia. High flow ECMO is a term uh, to basically describe the addition of an, uh, a second drainage cannula to improve um, the oxygenation return to your patient. Uh, we have and do sometimes add a second oxygenator into the circuit as well. Um, and that's an option to use, uh, something you discuss with your cardiac surgery or trauma team. Um, if you're having that much of uh, difficulty oxygenating your patient adequately. Hypercarbia is pretty simply addressed in general in our patients. Um, adjusting the sweep on your ECMO circuit tends to be all you need to do. Um, if you feel like you're up against a wall and you've increased your sweep as much as you possibly can, um, you can also titrate your vent, increase your delta, um, do some things like that to see if you can uh, improve the patient's ventilation 
using their lungs rather than just the ECMO circuit, uh, excuse me, the ECMO circuit. Um, and just like you can add a second oxygenator for refractory hypoxia, you can also add an additional blender and we'll take a look at what that looks like in just a minute. So how do we know what we do with titration? Like what do we, what do we base our decisions on? Well, um, every day when you look at the patient and their labs, you're gonna see multiple ABGs. You're gonna see uh, on the left-hand side here, your ECMO arterial ABG, which is an ABG that's drawn uh, off the ECMO circuit immediately after the oxygenator. And so it basically refle reflects how well your oxygenator is functioning for your patient. Um, on the right-hand side, you see the patient's ABG, and this is drawn off of their radial or femoral A-line and is a reflection of what they're systemically circulating. So these are the things that we look at every day on ECMO uh, gases. And what do we, what are our decision points? Well, we look at the whole gas, of course, but the big uh, points that we look at um, as a reflection of how well your uh, oxygenator is functioning is your PaO2 on your arterial gas. A normal or a well-functioning oxygenator should have a PaO2 um, of well above 200. 300 and 400 are optimal, um, but in a PO2 of 250 or 270, assuming that your patient isn't hemolyzing or demonstrating um, hypoxia is, is also adequate. So the, the better, the higher the number, the better. On your patient ABG, this is where you're gonna make determinations about weaning the sweep on your, um, on your ECMO circuit. So your PaCO2 in your patient um, is, gonna, is gonna tell you whether or not you need to increase your sweep to increase the ventilation of your patient and clear more CO2. Or if your patient's PCO2, like this one, for example, is 37, you can, in theory, wean your sweep down and um, allow the patient's native lung function to do the ventilation that it's showing you they are able to do. Um, okay, so I was referencing the blender, which is the, the piece of equipment on your ECMO circuit that allows you to titrate your uh, sweep or your CO2 clearance. And that is what you see over here on the left side of the screen. It is basically just a flow meter that allows you to turn the dial up and down depending upon how much sweep you wanna provide for the, the patient. The higher the sweep, the more CO2 clearance that the ECMO circuit is doing and the lower the sweep, uh, the more CO2 clearance your patient is doing. So how do you wean a patient from ECMO? Well, in, uh, in theory, you'll start to see the patient clinically improving and you'll start to see your, your sweep naturally come down as the patient's intrinsic or native ventilation improves as their lungs get better. So once you get down to a low number sweep, one or 0.5, you can really start considering um, recirculation on the horizon for you. Something you need to also take into account is what your patient's vent settings are. If you've been able to maintain your patient on those long rest settings, a pressure control of 10 over 10 uh, with a rate of 10, and you're still weaning your sweep and everything looks well on your gases, um, you're very much ready to consider recirculation of your patient. If you've had to titrate your vent support up in order to adequately oxygenate and ventilate your patient, it's something you really wanna um, 
kind of adjust and wean before you go down the path where you're recirculating your patient. And the reason we say this and the reason we emphasize long rest settings um, and doing this before you recirculate your patient is once you recirculate your patient and decannulate them, it's kind of a one-way ticket. They have been decannulated and um, we don't often recannulate patients. That's kind of a, a big concern for us. So we want their vent settings to be as low as possible for them uh, so that if once decannulated, they become bacteremic or septic or they develop a ventilator-associated pneumonia, that they uh, have some room to move on their ventilator and you can support them without necessarily um, kind of being at the high levels of vent support already. So recirculation, once you've optimized everything and you're ready to recirculate your patient, we pre-pandemic uh, were recirculating patients for about 24 hours. And if they looked well after 24 hours and there were no concerning signs, uh, we would consider decannulating them. With the pandemic and COVID um, and our resources, we have extended that time to about 72 hours so that patients can definitely demonstrate that they are okay um, recirculating and that they'll be fine once decannulated. Decannulation from BV ECMO is something that can take place at the bedside. It's a relatively easy and quick procedure. Patients who are on VA ECMO do require a trip to the operating room as that uh, arteriotomy where the arterial cannula is placed must be repaired primarily through a cut down and that's done in the OR typically. So um, moving into ECMO in the time of COVID, um, a lot has changed um, with uh, how we kind of do ECMO. At least that's kind of what we anticipated. We weren't sure what it was gonna be like last year. University of Maryland purchased and rented many additional circuits. And um, in the kind of height of our surge here in Baltimore, we were supporting 28 adult patients at one time on VV ECMO. Um, as well as maintaining the pediatric program in the PICU. Um, it's a pretty significant number of ECMO patients on pump at one time. In preparation for our anticipated COVID surge here, uh, big uh, group, cardiac surgeons, multidisciplinary uh, group kind of sat down and looked through our previous indications of um, what we considered patients um, requirements to be to be considered an ECMO candidate. And we really kind of scrutinized those and pared those down because there was concern that our resources were not going to be abundant um, enough to support typical patients that we would cannulate, um, especially if our surge was significant. And so we really um, narrowed those. We dropped our age limit for COVID ECMO to 55, which in typical times we would say 65 is our cutoff for VB ECMO. We um, kind of uh, made an agreement that our hard and fast um, contraindications uh, would be significant end organ dysfunction, a BMI of greater than 40, any prolonged mechanical ventilation over seven days. And we kind of just made those um, in, uh, indications and contraindications a little bit more stringent. So our experience though, over the past um, year has um, really supported that. And I think we've done, we've uh, wandered a little bit outside of those. And I think we've been pleasantly surprised overall. 
So kind of going back to our numbers here at university, we talked about the 162 total non-COVID ECMO runs in 2020. Well, at the end of December in 2020, we had done 66 COVID VB ECMOs with a survival to discharge of 64%. And when compared to, ECMO, uh, excuse me, ELSA's number internationally, we had a pretty uh, notable um, survival uh, in comparison to their numbers, which is I think um, to be applauded. Um, since the end of December um, and up until about mid-April, our numbers have increased to about 90 COVID-BB ECMOs, uh, which uh, notably is the most in the world at this point for COVID ECMO in a single center. And we have a survival rate that's upwards of 67%, and that's survival to discharge, not just survival from ECMO. So also pretty awesome. We have cared for four VA ECMO patients with COVID. Uh, two of those patients uh, died and two of them survived to discharge. So um, not, not terrible either there. Um, so what is different really? Uh, is anything really different? Well, um, ELSO published these guidelines about a month ago uh, for COVID uh, ECMO basically. And they outlined uh, in this paper, not only general considerations, but very patient specific considerations. Um, and the general considerations kind of address those resource uh, limitations that institutions might have, especially in the era of COVID surges. Um, it is not clear at this point whether or not COVID patients require longer durations of ECMO runs. Um, or whether or not they are kind of fall more into the average ARDS kind of picture. Um, but and certainly if they do require longer durations of ECMO runs, that is a higher degree of resource utilization. Um, and those are concerns that a lot of institutions have. The patient specific um, considerations we'll address here. Um, they broke it down really by system. Um, they published these guidelines with recommendations or an inability to provide recommendations just based on the lack of true um, data at this point. Mechanical ventilation in particular, they do not have any recommendations to suggest deviation from our typical pre-COVID, uh, otherwise typical ARDS-like patients. They recommend that tracheostomy is likely feasible and safe for our patients. It's something that we've done from the very beginning. Um, and that prone positioning, while they don't have um, definitive data at this point, there certainly is a trend or an association to improve mortality in patients with COVID who do undergo prone positioning. Awake ECMO, we've touched on this a few times with um, early extubation strategies is feasible, but there's not a lot of evidence to support that it is better necessarily or not um, when compared to um, like lung rest settings like we do here. Hematologically and uh, hemodynamically, we have all seen in our COVID patients this kind of uh, paradoxical uh, tendency towards bleeding and then simultaneously this tendency towards clotting. And it's not, uh, it's totally unclear, I think, at this point, what's driving this very strange coagulopathy. But they do, they bleed um, and they bleed like stink. Um, we have patients who uh, have completely normal tags that are bleeding from every raw surface and every puncture site on their body um, and have normal coag factors altogether. 
patients develop DVTs uh, much more easily or um, quickly maybe even uh, than the normal uh, ARDS population. And that should uh, maintain, uh, you guys should maintain a pretty high index of suspicion and a low threshold to order confirmatory testing in these patients. There's no evidence really for the idea of cytokine removal and whether or not that's through like CRT. There just, it doesn't exist at this point. Um, there's no data to suggest that we should alter our blood transfusion thresholds or strategies for COVID ECMO at this point. And similarly to the uh, predilection for them to develop DVTs, they do have a predilection towards throwing PEs, um, not surprisingly. And they also have um, what I think we've all recognized as um, a strange uh, predilection to developing some degree of right heart dysfunction or frank failure. We do see biventricular dysfunction in these patients, almost like a viral myocarditis-like picture, but there's been an interesting um, uh, isolated right ventricular dysfunction that I think we've all appreciated at different times and oftentimes can require inotropic support and aggressive diuresis in order to help offload uh, the patient's right ventricular failure. So in addition to these recommendations or lack of recommendations by also just based on a paucity of data, there are some kind of anecdotal experiences that we've had here at University of Maryland, and I think um, many other places have seen similar things. And especially in the beginning of the pandemic, when we had the airlock open, we found that so many of our patients required massive amounts of sedation in order to keep them safe and to prevent them from being overwhelmingly tachycardic and tachypnic. Um, agitated. They were on multiple medications, ketamine, propofol, versed, dexmedetomidine, and still breaking through their sedation, in addition to like oral atypicals and um, IV PRN medications. It was really remarkable how much sedation these patients required. We've noticed that there's a tendency for these patients to have persistent and refractory coughing fits. Um, and it's quite frustrating, to be honest. Um, we don't see this in our typical ARDS population, um, but these patients um, really have persistent coughing fits. And we try things like lidocaine med treatments. We've thought in the beginning that perhaps early trach might help offset some of this and really haven't found that anything has been really overwhelmingly helpful. Sometimes these, these patients just do it. And, Sometimes we've had to um, institute neuromuscular blockade to kind of um, squash this, uh, this drive. The tachypnea we've seen and we see um, in uh, not intubated and not even that sick of patients, they'll come into your emergency department, they'll be hypoxic and they'll be extremely tachypnic, uh, but they don't look like they're in distress. We see that in our ECMO patients as well. Uh, but given the degree and the severity of their lung injury and the fact that they require ECMO, uh, we have concerns about the patient-induced uh, lung injury from severe tachypnea. And this has driven kind of our practice of partial paralysis in these patients to titrate uh, a Nimbex drip to a respiratory rate of 25 or less or some um, slightly arbitrary number, whatever makes us feel comfortable. Um, the bleeding and anticoagulation uh, is a major issue. Uh, it seems like they all bleed at some point and all clot at some point, and sometimes it all happens together. When we started out in the pandemic because of the, their uh, predilection to develop thrombus, 
Uh, we had increased our PTT goals in these patients on VV ECMO from our typical 45 to 55 up into what we typically do for VA ECMO, which is 60 to 80. But I think that we found that so many of these patients just have recurrent bleeding events that we've backed down to our normal traditional ARDS strategies of anticoagulation with a PTT goal uh, between 45 and 55. Additionally, these patients uh, seem to have very friable, fragile, um, poorly compliant, very stiff lungs and have, um, tend to develop pneumothoraces very easily, um, which supports the use of lung rest ventilator settings and getting them off high pressures as quickly as possible. Uh, over the course of the past several months, it's also become part of our triage assessment for patients who are being referred for potential ECMO. Um, the presence of pneumomediastinum or pneumothoraces in patients that are being referred for ECMO uh, consideration is a kind of a big red flag to us and concerning um, basically as a reflection of perhaps how progressive their uh, fibroproliferative disease and their tendency to develop fibrosis. Um, or potentially even the, the progression of fibrosis already in their disease state is. Um, we have unfortunately had to turn away a lot of these patients because I think we have found that we just get stuck with these patients on ECMO and unfortunately we're not able to ever um, uh, get them off ECMO. So we've used it as um, a way for us to uh, help triage, I guess. Um, so, all of that being said about COVID um, and all of that being said about our previous experience and the history of ECMO, where are we going with ECMO and ECMO care? What does the future look like uh, for ECMO care? It's actually pretty interesting and intriguing. Um, in February of 2020, the US FDA um, approved the Nova Lung ECMO machine essentially for use for greater than six hours, which is kind of mind blowing. It's the first device uh, to provide ECMO care for that's been FDA approved for greater than six hours of use, which implies um, accurately so that all of our patients that we maintain on ECMO are done off label essentially. Our patients who use oxygenators for weeks at a time are um, experimental, if you will. Um, the oxygenators we use, just like all other devices, are um, cleared for less than six hours of use. So this is kind of exciting. Additionally, it can provide VA or VV ECMO support. It's clearly more compact, more mobile than our rated flow machines, which are big and bulky. Um, and it allows for a patient's easier uh, mobilization as a result. Decreases the need for intubation. So similar to the Nova Lung, which is on the horizon, the Hemolung has been FDA approved for the use of uh, VV ECMO only uh, for up to seven days. The kind of neat thing about this option is the dual lumen central venous catheter. So it's a single catheter, um, somewhat similar to the Avalon or the, the dual lumen catheter that we talked about before when you're talking about cannulation strategies. It's pretty small, it's 15.5 French, um, and it can be placed either femorally or uh, in the IJ. Um, so also much more compact overall um, than our uh, current strategies. 
There's a gentleman uh, by the name of Robert Bartlett that is considered to be, oh, I'm sorry, here's the came along, sorry. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Robert Bartlett who um, is very much considered kind of the father of the modern um, ECMO um, care, really. And um, he wrote a paper several years ago in 2016 about um, the history of ECMO and where he thinks it's going. Um, he defined three eras of ECMO, uh, initially beginning in the 1980s when ECMO became, um, I hesitate to say mainstream because I think that's a little overstated, but became a, a more commonly practiced um, mode of uh, support. Um, sedation and paralysis were significant in these patients. They remained intubated on rest vent settings. They required a very specialized amount of support by ECMO specialists, perfusionists, and highly trained doctors back then. And bleeding was uh, still a major issue. Um, ECMO 2 is, I would argue to say, where we still are, even though uh, Dr. Bartlett suggests that it ended a few years ago. I think this is where we still, we still are in our practice. Uh, patients can be awake, they are spontaneously breathing, and whether or not they remain intubated on CPAP um, or they are extubated and interactive um, or have a tracheostomy, they are awake and potentially interactive. The care um, requirements have decreased to some degree, um, and perhaps that's because we've become more comfortable with uh, ECMO care. An ICU nurse is very capable of helping to manage in conjunction with either a perfusionist or here at this institution, we have ECMO specialists. It's a watch and wait philosophy, uh, allow the lung to heal without inflicting additional um, uh, damage. And then bleeding has become less of an issue than it was in the past. So ECMO 3, right? Where are we going in the future? What is uh, Dr. Bartlett's vision of what ECMO looks like? looks like in the future. Well, um, pretty lofty here. Uh, he thinks awake, ambulatory. Well, we do that here already with many of our patients. We ambulate them and get them out of bed. We have a pretty aggressive PTOT team. So, okay, that seems pretty reasonable. Extubated, okay. Off the ventilator, all right. Um, here's where it gets a little, little interesting. Uh, conventional care for maybe a week or two or three in the hospital, and then perhaps they go home and wait out their pulmonary recovery or their bridge to transplant. Um, and that, that idea of a patient going home on ECMO is um, really quite mind-blowing and exciting. Um, spontaneously breathing, obviously, if they're extubated um, and supported. And then the idea of not using anticoagulation in this, uh, these patients because the technology and the materials will be um, bonded to prevent platelet aggregation is um, pretty amazing, an amazing idea. Um, I suspect more likely we will be transitioning to the use of something like a direct thrombin inhibitor in these patients, um, as opposed to really just no, uh, no anticoagulation at all, but we'll see. Um, way down the road and still very experimental um, at best is the idea of an implantable membrane lung. Um, in my mind, the corollary to this is essentially a VAD for cardiac support. And this would essentially function in that same kind of in fashion. 
um, it would hook up to the central circulation and like a bag be implanted in the patient. It's a paracorporeal device that's entirely um, within the patient's body. Um, it is, can be used in theory as a bridged transplantation or as destination therapy, very similar to our VADS these days. And will provide the ability to uh, completely oxygenate and ventilate the patient free from their own native um, uh, pulmonary abilities. The risk of uh, systemic thromboembolization is pretty real also in these patients, just like in our bad patients. And maybe, um, maybe with the advent of new and improving technologies, a DTI might just be all they need. So um, it's clearly um, still experimental. The research and the outcomes that they have um, uh, found with uh, the use of these devices has not been very good yet. So they're still clearly working to improve the technology, but it's an interesting idea. And I think probably the wave of the future for our patients with end stage lung disease or pretty severe ARDS. So that's what the future looks like. And with that, um, we are done.